You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. You're now listening to New Models. Dubai Diaries 2023 Before the trip, my thought cloud of Dubai was something like futuristic city, rich people, slavery, guaranteed imprisonment upon arrival at the airport. Later, I tried to cross-reference this initial thought cloud with some non-Americans from the West, and they agreed on the first three but didn't know about the reputation of the Dubai airport customs. I guess it's a particularly American association. In 2006, the Dubai airport arrest and four-year prison sentencing of music producer Dallas Austin made national news in the US. He was found in possession of cocaine on his way to Naomi Campbell's birthday party at the striking, sail-shaped Burj Al Arab, the building that first made Dubai go viral and which graced my iMac wallpaper in my freshman year of college. As a drum and bass DJ in my teens, I also paid attention to the 2007 arrest of BBC Radio 1's Groove Rider, again sentenced to four years in prison, this time for a gram of marijuana mistakenly left in a short's pocket. Things were quiet until 2014 when DJ Esco, the DJ of rapper Future, was arrested for an accidentally packed bag of weed at the Dubai airport. All three of these men were eventually released early, helped by the prominent celebrities and government officials from their home countries, who advocated on their behalf. DJ Esco would name his next mixtape with Future, 56 Nights, in memory of his time spent locked up in Dubai. In the mixtape's intro, Esco samples a voicemail from one of the police officers that he met in prison. It also contains, in my opinion, the greatest future song of all time, March Madness. The only song, Esco says, that he could remember clearly in jail, and I too imagined playing it in my head, day after day, for hope and strength, after my own inevitable arrest in the Dubai airport, if I ever dared to visit. When Schumann Bissar invited Carly and me to give a lecture at the Global Art Forum during this year's Art Dubai, my Dubai thought cloud hung low and dark around me, swelling with intrigue and fear, like a storm approaching on the horizon. Schumann had sent us some essays he had written about the city for us to read before our arrival, a gentle nudge for us to leave any and all preconceptions, even our foundational Western frameworks, behind. If we did so, the trip would be far more interesting and rewarding. The flight was hell. We had to leave our apartment at 4 a.m., our connection in Frankfurt was literally impossible, and after a delirious five hours spent in a German McDonald's, we boarded our new flight and then finally, at midnight, landed in Dubai. Of course, there was a security check after arrival, my now third of the day certainly the one which would find some forgotten contraband, or have me singled out as an undesirable, my hair shaved and tested, providing a chronological record of every forbidden chemical I had consumed over its entire length, 
years of transgression, read aloud in a Sharia court, each charge evoking a gasp, more horrified than the last, from the niqab-clad women who, for whatever reason, I imagined attending my trial. I stared at the checkpoint as I approached it, certain I would face the cutting edge of hypersensitive security technology, stuff the West found to be in violation of the most fundamental human right to privacy. Micromagnetic resonance rays that could not only see the chemical signature of every molecule in my possession, but could see through my skull and into my mind, rendering memories of my deepest, darkest secrets in perfect clarity on a small monitor in a dark room where uniformed men watched and gawked, shaking their heads in disgust. Alas, the security agent was alone, bored and disinterested, and the x-rays and metal detectors appeared to be of 1990s vintage, as if from the prop department of a literal security theater. Leave my Dubai thought cloud behind, I reminded myself. Next, we entered a bright hall staffed by at least 20 traditionally dressed Emiratis, each sitting in a low, open, circular booth. One of them took our passports, said nothing, nodded, smiled, and scanned our retinas. But I was very tired, and also, I have small eyeballs. The first scan attempt failed, then the second, Communication failure. then the third. This is it, I thought. I'm going to jail for possession of unscannable retinas. Danger. What reason could there be for my retinal defiance other than a desperate attempt to conceal the criminality that lurks behind them? To hide the scenes of unforgivable sin that have been reflected upon their surface. Weapons activated. I knew my whole future came down to this one moment, and I stretched my eyes open as wide as I could. Login accepted. The fourth scan finally worked. The Emirati had a funny smile, like he's the quiet, mischievous one of the family. The master of subtle hilarity, always delivered with an inscrutable straight face. He stamped our passports and we walked to baggage claim. Our bags came quickly to the belt. We grabbed them and exited the unmanned, nothing-to-declare door of customs. No ion-sniffing drone in sight. And in that moment, the thought clouds lifted, and I realized I was free. A new man, my past erased. Nothing more than a pair of retinas and a name in the Dubai mainframe. A virtual tabula rasa ready to be filled in a city created by the world. The airport metro was closed. It was too late at night. So we walked to the four-lane cab stand. One for regular cabs with male drivers. One for the pink-topped women and children cabs with female drivers. One for the big cabs for big groups and one for the limousines, black Lexuses with leather interiors and drivers who wore a shirt and tie. Behind the cab lanes was a wadi, or oasis, water gushing out of every rocky crevice, the palm trees and fountain streams lit from below. My sleep-deprived mind thought, celebration, we are in the desert, but water is flying everywhere. It's a water celebration. A sequence of airport staff in shirts and ties tells us Come here. Go there. Cabs are that way. Your cab is this cab. Only the last guy in a shirt and tie wasn't airport staff. He was a driver. And suddenly, he was opening the door of his Lexus for us. We didn't have the energy to resist. We rode to our hotel with the windows down. 
There's this really particular feeling you get when you leave somewhere really cold in the day and land somewhere really warm at night. It's an electricity, a sense of magic and potential carried in the breeze as it rushes across your skin and you feel a flutter inside, like you're coming up on a drug. The first thing that stood out is the size of the billboards lining the highway. They are unimaginably huge, like an office building turned horizontal. The one that stood out most was advertising Multibank Group, a stock image of a white businessman smiling, arms raised, as $100 bills fell all around him from the sky. The world's number one largest and most regulated financial derivatives institution. Incredible turnover of USD 12.1 billion per day. Invest with us because life is better with money, it read. Our driver was from Bangladesh. He lives in Dubai 10 months out of the year and then takes two months off to be home with his family. We got the vibe that by working in Dubai, he made enough for his family to have a relatively middle-class life in Bangladesh. Dubai has been a center of global arbitrage for over a hundred years now, whether by capitalizing upon regional gold price differences in the early 1900s or those of human labor today. The skyline came into view, the Burj Khalifa, tallest building in the world, and the Museum of the Future, an Islamo-futurist stainless steel Torah-shaped monolith entirely engraved with Arabic writing, a poem written by Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum himself. Dubai, like the rest of the UAE, is an autocratic tribal monarchy commanding a free market capitalist economy. Functionally, you could consider Dubai a startup city. Companies aren't democracies after all, and Sheikh Mohammed is the Steve Jobs of Dubai. Dubai's seed capital was provided by a VC fund led by hundreds of millions of dead dinosaurs. But after reaching peak export in 1991, oil is now less than 1% of the GDP. Still, with billions of dollars a year in runway for 20 years, it's a good reminder that the startup city dreams of Web3 could only be, in reality, startup villages at best. There was something strange, though, about the approaching skyline. I had first perceived the Museum of the Future as a public art sculpture. In fact, it's 22 stories high and with a width of maybe twice that, containing 30,000 square meters of floor space. And the sharp skyward spike of the Burj Khalifa? Was it really that tall? Perhaps the retina scan also adjusts your eyes to make the tallest building in the world appear not quite tall enough, instilling a constant motivation in everyone to always aim higher. Or perhaps, passing the massive billboards advertising even bigger dreams, my brain calibrated to the Dubai billboard standard, making both the billboards and the buildings seem just normal in size. This particular perceptual shrinking would not stay with me, but a general disorientation would. Dubai is a city containing a multitude of cities, each with their own sense of elevation, density, economy, and scale. And it is the dizzying shifts between them, not the sci-fi architecture, that make Dubai feel like the future. In our online lives, we expand and contract our scope from the trivial to the existentially important, the individual to the planetary, without feeling anything, if we are aware of the shifts at all. But in Dubai, a city like the internet made material, where digital renders are actually physically built, 
every scope that humankind can access becomes visible, visceral, and impossible to ignore. Pretty quickly upon arriving in Dubai, I had a go-to line from my thoughts on the Emirate. In part, it's a take indebted to an article Schumann Basar penned for Badoon some 15 years ago titled, The Magic Kingdom, How Not to Think About Dubai. In the piece, Schumann pushes back against the American urban theorist Mike Davis, rest in peace, who, upon visiting Dubai the year prior, played an epic game of anti-capitalist bingo on the emergent city-state across 23 pages of the New Left Review. In his 2006 essay, Davis cites all the greatest hits as evidence for Dubai's ecological and sociological depravity it being home to the first and second tallest buildings in the world, as well as the world's first and second largest shopping malls. He laments the hubris of Dubai and its manufacturing of islands and archipelagos so as to expand its capacity for waterfront real estate. Davis calls Dubai a caricature of futurism, and one powered no less by the easy money of oil. He then points to the U.S. military-industrial complex, the Halliburton employees and other U.S. government contractors who, at least at the time, were filing in and out of Dubai Airport's Terminal 2 in droves. Dubai, he said, was a facilitator of terror, pointing to the arms dealing and money laundering made possible by the gray market trade the city unofficially accommodates, whether via offshoring and layered investment instruments, age-old private hawala networks, or as a major node for under-the-radar gold and gem trafficking between the West and the Global South. And then Davis turns to a discussion of class segregation and humanitarian rights, the cheap construction and service labor that has brought post-millennial Dubai into being. I'm here to tell you that all of this is more or less true, but also that to limit one's understanding of Dubai and the UAE more broadly to this framing is not only lazy, it forfeits an opportunity to better understand the complexity of the world as it actually exists. As Schumann noted way back in 2007, there is a realism to the Gulf region, and to Dubai in particular, that is matched by few, if any, other places in the world. And during the short five days Julian and I spent in the UAE, I came to think about Dubai as a kind of spectacular geological site, where the molten lava of raw capitalism is continuously breaking through. Julian offered another analogy, though, that I think is even more apt. Dubai as a gazing ball of the world, all that contemporary society desires and fears visible in a single sphere. Our first three nights in Dubai were spent in the mediagenic pro-influencer hotel, complements of Global Art Forum. The lobby was scented with a slightly saccharine, woody fragrance, and our room featured a black and chrome smeg fridge, as well as an inspirational throw pillow reading, Be Wild and Wonder. We cast aside the pillow and flipped on the TV to entertain us while we unpacked. Russia Today is still broadcast in Dubai. In fact, it's the third most popular channel in the Emirates. So we tuned in, organizing our mini bottles of hyaluronic acid and organic toothpaste amid made.com wood and wrought iron fixtures, while talking heads on screen warned of revolutions in the global south, suspiciously led by elites with graduate degrees backed by Western NGOs. Out our window, neo-donk remixes of 20th century top hits wafted up from the Asian fusion pool terrace restaurant. Gazing ball indeed.
In morning light, we could better see our surrounds. The hotel was situated in a Florida-like suburban quarter called The Greens, directly adjacent to a free economic zone referred to as Internet City, which is bordered on one side by Dubai's main traffic artery, the Sheikh Zayed Road, and on the other by Jebel Ali Racetrack. Side note, you might wonder how a place with average temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, five to six months out of the year, could host a legit horse racing circuit. Well, beyond restricting the active season to winter months, the answer lies in the same adaptive features utilized by the city's human residents, air conditioning and swimming pools. Yes, horse swimming pools. Many barns conduct their off-season conditioning in water, maintaining their equine athlete's muscle tone, not by galloping laps, but by swimming them. Meanwhile, most of the UAE's professional stables are so thoroughly temperature controlled that it's not uncommon for top horses to emerge from summer break with partial winter coats. Back at the hotel, I gamble that I can make a quick errand to the Mall of the Emirates before the day's conference begins. Google Maps shows the nearest metro station as just a block away, and from there, the mall just three stops. Totally doable. But down at street level, I realize that there's no obvious pedestrian crossing for the heavily trafficked overpass merging with the regular street that stands between our hotel and the metro's entrance. I look up. The towering concrete and rebar skeletons of several in-progress buildings offer no helpful cues. My pupils narrow under the brutally white sun as I wait for another pedestrian to attempt the passage. But at this time of day, there are hardly any pedestrians in sight. I wonder where all the people are and how they circulate and who then this metro is even for. But then a woman enters my peripheral vision, impeccably dressed with sleek hair and carrying a stylish handbag. She steps directly into traffic. A luxury black car slows to let her pass, then another and the cars behind. A delivery scooter swerves to clear her path. She pauses at the center medium, checks her phone, and repeats the process, effortlessly reaching the other side. I'm impressed, but also in disbelief. Is that really the method? A minute later, an Emirati in a crisp white Kandura, Gutra, and dark shades followed suit, stepping into traffic as the woman had. And again, the vehicles barreling down the concrete overpass slowed to a near halt as he calmly walked in front of them. These intersecting scales and their opposite but mutually accommodating logic came to feel like a key characteristic of the city. A metropolis in a desert, a ski slope in a mall, two women in full modest dress, lower faces covered, queuing for the Kylie Jenner cosmetics pop-up selfie experience. Emboldened by my fellow pedestrians, I too crossed the road and made it to the metro entrance, which leads not underground, but up. I send the escalator and navigate a winding path of air-conditioned glass skywalks lined with moving walkways before arriving at the actual station. Signs prompt me to log into the municipal Wi-Fi to check the route. The ticketing system is intuitive, trains arrive every five minutes. So far in my experience, all of Dubai is effectively Internet City. Non-nationals are even gifted a 24-hour SIM card at the airport's passport control. And despite the hassle of yet another number being introduced to every messaging app on my phone, I like the thought of the real Emirates passport stamp being me authorizing my Apple Pay to connect with a SIM provider for a seamless top-up when the 24 hours expired and being logged into the city's corporate financial grid. 
Bracketing all obvious criticisms of a state-directed prompt to immediately validate personal identity and financial viability with a private corporation upon arrival, was this not a truly contemporary form of international registration? It also tracks with Dubai's actual economy, which runs not on oil, but on retail and trade primarily, followed by financial and insurance services. And due to this, it occurred to Julian and me that Dubai would be a pretty good place to weather a catastrophic global event. Regardless if the markets rise or fall, the Emirate will continue to benefit so long as there is robust market activity. Meanwhile, it's Jabal Ali Seaport, situated at a midpoint among Asian, African, and European routes, is one of the world's largest maritime hubs. There's also the fact that this monstrosity in the desert, decried by Mike Davis, happens to feature a master plan predicated on impossible conditions. Extreme heat, insufficient fresh water, limited oil reserves, and an ethnically and financially diverse population of international workers drawn to the state for opportunities not available to them in their home countries. In this view, Dubai has been actively acclimating to the conditions of the Anthropocene since the turn of the millennium. Its horses train in swimming pools, after all, and its tap water, which is fully potable, is desalinated seawater generated as a byproduct of the Dubai Aluminum Company smelters that is then routed to the Dubai Electric and Water Authority for power generation and finally civic water distribution. Meanwhile, its Mohammed bin Rashid Al Makum solar park is the largest single-site solar field in the world and currently supplies 14% of Dubai's electrical power. While that's still comparatively small, clean energy is a major initiative of the Dubai leadership, which is publicly striving, both out of practical necessity and good PR, for 100% clean energy by 2050. This isn't to say that Dubai is pure or even an approximate ideal. Mike Davis was right to call out the carbon and human cost to the city's development and the dark side of its financial infrastructure. And to be honest, the tap water isn't exactly Evian and the social and economic divide between white collar and service workers is untenable at times. And the otherworldliness of Dubai's vistas are in part attributable to the city's moderate to not so great smog. But unlike in the West, such issues are not externalities. They coexist within the same gazing ball as the Lambos flipping up their butterfly doors in front of the Burj Khalifa, the 10 million liter aquarium tank suspended inside the Dubai Mall and the Palm Jumeirah's 200-meter-high, 360-degree infinity pool. That's a pretty insane view, am I right? Yeah, the views are just incredible. So the highest 360 infinity pool and view yeah. in the world. And then the highest infinity pool is over there, isn't it? Yeah. So this is the highest 360. It's 200 meters high. Wow. Incredible. It feels significant that from nearly any Dubai high point, one can see where the city tapers to meet the void of the desert, the edges of the built environment always in frame. It also seems significant that Dubai put such value on maximalist superlative like highest, biggest, fastest, first. Is this the toxic accumulative tendency of capitalism at work? Or the generative aspirations of a culture racing to innovate a new paradigm capable of sustaining it beyond 20th century norms? Can the answer be both at once? The next station is Airport Terminal 1. The outgoing security of the Dubai airport was the least rigorous of any airport I have ever been to. Maybe it's because they charge import duties but not export duties? 
I thought, and Google quickly confirmed this. There was, however, an automated rescan of my retinas, my Dubai eyes clocking out. Mission complete. I guess it's just a rephrasing, again, of Schumann's thesis, but at the trip's end, I felt like I was leaving a fantasy land with a reality check. This is not to say that Dubai's reality is the one reality, but it is a reality, a very, very large reality, and experiencing it causes a perceptual shrinking of the reality we've been conditioned to experience in the West. Dubai's hyper-reality, like the hyper-billboards, causes a recalibration of scale. The travel back was uneventful. I rewatched Mad Max Fury Road on the plane and thought, damn, all this over oil? They should have been like Dubai, diversified. It was below freezing and snowing in Berlin, nothing standing taller than trees in the gray horizon. And at the airport, young people in black, platform boots, chains, tattoos, here to do rituals in once productive industrial buildings, now repurposed to simulate an exhilarating apocalypse through pushing one's body and sense of reality beyond its natural limits. Compared to Dubai, Berlin seems to be in a state of stagnation, unsure of itself in the face of the future. But if Dubai is a bright morning, if not high noon, Berlin is a sunset, quaintly embracing its entropy and filling it with a beautiful, bittersweet romance that was missing from the city I had departed from. There's all sorts of analogies possible for this dichotomy and one's preference for each. Do you prefer dawn or dusk? The triumph of the ego or the S&M of the superego and id? Do you prefer trad power realism or unattainable idealism? A functional and increasingly progressive autocracy or an inefficient, dysfunctional and increasingly superficial democracy? What about neo-donk remixes of the hits soundtracking your main character self-ideation? Or is your thing hard and dark techno obliterating your sense of self altogether? I know my scanned retinas, my Dubai eyes, still remain in the city's mainframe. They still see and still carry the city's logic, and they are still installed in my mind too. They read Western news stories about Dubai's reprehensible treatment of laborers, vast corruption, the disturbing hard soap opera of the royals. And my Dubai eyes respond, As if exploitation, corruption, and suffering is unique to Dubai. The only reason the West is appalled is because the West obscures its suffering behind veils of ideals, or tucks it away at the end of distant supply chains as if that somehow makes the suffering more acceptable. So much obsession with individual freedom. So much time wasted debating individual freedom. So much violent crime. Violent crime being the most radical act of individual freedom of them all. Democracy is far too slow for the speed of the future, and you know it. Everyone LARPing 20th century activism, right and left, locked in an absurd flywheel of Alinskyan tactics, never intended for the accelerated virality of today's network society. Each individual a little authoritarian, demanding the world be homogenized in their own image. It's 2023. Wake the fuck up. 
The West is a democracy made up of a billion autocrats. Dubai has merely a handful of autocrats, and they've successfully built a true, pluriversal city where conservative Muslims and Western atheists coexist and even cooperate, and nobody's demanding anyone else to change. You had a thought cloud of Dubai? Well, here's one for the West. Hope, cope, mope, and dope. Trying to reconcile this, I wondered, what is my thought cloud of the future itself? I realized I didn't have one. The future is impossible for one pair of eyes to see. But now, with two pairs, if I squint with them all, I can just make out its shape. Beyond the trees of Berlin, and even beyond the tallest building in the world. Thank you for listening to New Models. Dubai Diaries 2023 was written and read by Carly Busta and Lil Internet. Sound design and mixing by myself, Lil Internet. We want to give a very, very special thanks to Shuman Basar, Commissioner of Dubai's Global Art Forum, among many other talents, for making our trip and thus this Dubai Diaries possible. At Schumann's invitation, Carly and I gave a talk with the theme, Predicting Media, and it will be available online soon. Schumann brought together a lot of interesting people at Art Dubai, at a Lebanese grill, at an open-air glitterati rave, in the desert around a bonfire, at a beach club, and at an Indian truck stop. Some, we hope, will be joining us for an episode in the future, and a big shout-out to everyone we got to spend time with in the UAE. Our Discord is having issues due to a Patreon bot update that nobody asked for and that ruined everything. We're working on it. Please check that your subscription is indeed active and disconnect and reconnect your Discord account to Patreon if you're having problems. Needless to say, we're back and we'll see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.